Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Sully's Open Conversation, the show that aims to have an unfamiliar conversation in a familiar environment. I'm sat in my conservatory today with Ellie. Welcome Ellie. Hi. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. Um, so we've probably known each other for quite a while. Yeah. But the last time I saw you, I can't you know, remember. I was actually thinking about this when I was listening to your other episodes. I was thinking, when did we meet and how? <laughs> I think it was actually BBM days where you I just said, no. I was going to say BBM. <laughs> well, that's what I thought. When I was like, oh, do you know what? It must be BBM. The round. <laughs> it must be BBM. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let Ellie introduce herself. I'm Ellie. Uh, so I work for a company, a private healthcare company that's partnership with the NHS. Um, I've worked there for about five years now, so I started there when I was 18, 19. Um, so I currently work on a male acute ward. So we have men that come to us from uh, being homeless, being found on the street, acting um, bizarrely, erratically, um, or some self-referrals, um, and they usually stay about 28 days, so it's quite a quick turnover. Previously, the hospital was female rehab for about four years, um, and that was long-term female patients uh, and then we rebranded and then about three years ago they offered me the opportunity to do like a nursing apprenticeship so I'm in my third year of uni right now um, funded and you know given the opportunity by the company I work for so in doing that I've also worked and I mean various different mental health wards since that were all different types of people mental illnesses categories risk levels Amazing, yeah. <laughs> an extensive, an extensive it's CV. Been a while, so, far. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the way that we like to kick things off is if you could name an experience, mm -hmm. uh, a positive experience that you've heard, seen, or done recently. Uh, do you know? I was thinking about this. I love. Firstly, I love that you're doing this. I think that's Thank so you. good. I think practicing the gratitude is so helpful. Um, but for me, I think one recently was probably the last day I worked, which was about two, three days ago. And I'd had a really, really hard day. It'd been really busy, really tough. Um, a lot of permanent staff weren't in, so it was a lot of responsibility. And I messaged my friends and was just saying, I'm feeling really irritable today. I'm feeling really tired, really fed up. And they said, come over, uh, just come see us. And I, you know, at first you think, I don't want to, I want to isolate. I don't yeah. want to be around people. But I thought, no, I know the right thing to do is me to go and be around my friends. So I went to my friend's house after work and when I got in, they'd had dinner made for me. They gave me the dinner. Oh. They gave me like a glass of sangria with all this fruit and ice. Um, yeah, TLC. it was really sweet. Like they did all this. So I went to try and help them like cook the halloumi and they were like, no, you go and sit down, sit down. I just sat there like watching them both make me dinner. And then when I was sitting down eating, one of them was like started massaging my back and playing with my oh. hair. And I was like, guys. First so, class I was like, say I had a really bad day at work. That, I know, wow. and that for me, I just... And they kept checking, are you feeling a bit better now? Are you feeling a bit better now? And that was just so lovely. That is have. stunning. Yeah, it was so nice. That's making me smile just it hearing so, about it. Honestly, it was so good. And I just thought, yeah, I appreciate them a lot. Because wow. that was really good. It was really nice. It's, it's amazing that they know kind of like to, to what to do and, yeah. and how to make you feel better as Definitely. well. Definitely. Food. <laughs> <laughs> So it was really good. The key they, to everyone's yeah, hearts. Yeah, they both work in nursing, so I think they get it. They get it as well. So they knew kind of what to do. It was really nice. It was really good. Amazing. That is so yeah. lovely. Very lovely. Um, so I suppose the first question is, what what made you want or, or get into the working in... The age-old question. Yeah. Do you know, all the placements I go on, 
within a couple of hours, couple of days, people are like, so what made you? <laughs> um, I think for me, it was an experience I had when I was about 15, 16. Uh, my granddad had just got diagnosed with dementia. He was in hospital or not yet diagnosed. He was in hospital. And there was a man on the hospital bed next to him who was fiddling around with um, all of the equipment. And my mum said, well, my mum was kind of panicking and she was like, oh no, he needs help. And I kind of went over there and did everything and was helping him because there were no nursing nurses around. Um, and my mum just made a flippant comment like, why don't you go into nursing? Like, that would be really good. Yeah. I thought, okay, that's an interesting <laughs> concept. So I think I went home and Googled it and then this whole open this whole can of worms up mental yeah. health nursing and I was like wow this is a thing and I was in therapy at the time and I thought okay interesting but I kind of thought it wouldn't be something I'd be able to go into because of my own experiences I thought no that would be too triggering it'd be too difficult mm -hmm. um but when I started looking into it I thought no this is what I want to do so I went through all the relevant went to college did the right things and then applied for the job and I think a massive part of it for me was especially by the time I actually started working in mental health when I was 18, 19, I'd done a lot of work and healing. And I thought, if I can go through the experiences I have and come out the other side, I would like the opportunity to show people that that can, that, that can be the same for them. And it's true, you know, I go through their, these people's histories and I think we have not had dissimilar lives at all. So for me to come out the other side, I know you can and it's nice to kind of say to people because obviously we can't talk too much about personal life at work but to mm -hmm. say to people you know I've, I understand what you're going through and you can get to the point that I'm in and a lot of my patients say they want to go into working in mental health and I think you a lot of the people I work with have experiences with mental health issues so yeah. it's like of course you can and I think that for me was yeah showing people that you can go through stuff and still come out the other side and live like such a good quality of life so I think that was it for me. Amazing. Wow. That, wow. And it just kind of it, it <clears throat> fell into my lap and I thought, yeah, it, I hadn't even thought about it before that. And when I got into it, I was like, this is my purpose, if you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, it's yeah, my yeah. calling and it's, it's what helped me. It's what saved me. It's what, yeah, it's what helped me massively by helping other it's people. It's giving you purpose, definitely. definitely. It's, it's, it's very important to kind of realise and feel fulfilled in, in, in what you're doing yeah. and it's and it's funny you say like having your own experience with mental health and thinking could I work in this is it going to be mm. triggering and coming out the other side as well it's like actually I probably understand best <laughs> to work to work with the people that are, are are in a place that potentially that I've been in or or have been on the same road yeah. and you suddenly realize you could help those people mm who have the potential to come out the other yeah. side and feel okay, like we've all, like there are a lot of people that have kind of been in that situation and thought there is no way out, there is, like this yeah. is it, this is it. And that's, we, we get that quite a lot, obviously sitting with patients who've been through really like traumatic incidences and you're debriefing with them and you're talking with them and they, they're saying like there is nothing, there is nothing for me to go to, there is nothing for me to do, there is no point in carrying on and you know they have all these hopes and dreams and they have all these things that they would want to achieve and i think a big part of it for me is showing them that yes you can you can go and do these things and that's the amazing part of working in mental health is you actually see these patients leave and do amazing things mm. and i've seen patients before you know engage in all the therapy and really put their all into it and then you hear through you know through people that they've 
they've got children now or they've they've gone back to school and they've gone back to college and they have this and they're doing this and you just and that yeah that's the, just the amazing the part win. of it is like yes you get we to did see it. you get yeah, to see yeah they yeah. did it like yeah it's 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 a joint effort part. really isn't it because it's certainly without that, without the care that you provide mm. and everyone that works in, in, in kind of your industry, it, it, like, it wouldn't be possible. Yeah. It wouldn't be possible. Um, and actually, it, it, it's quite interesting because I'm sure when you're working with them on the wards and they're, they're in a bad place, they don't fully appreciate that no. in, in, in the moment. Unfortunately, yeah, that's true. I think, and I think it's the same as even if you're not an inpatient and, you know, your friends are trying to help you, your family's trying to help you, and you you do become, for lack of a better term, stubborn. And you're like, no, no, I don't want anything. You yeah. want to isolate yourself because that's how it makes you feel. And they can't get away with that. They can't isolate themselves. So they they take their frustra- frustration out on us because we're, you know, trying to help them. And a lot of the times they don't want to be helped because, mm. as I'm sure you can understand, when you're in that, you don't want to be helped. Mm. It's comfort. It's... It's a safe space, even though when you're out of it, you can see it wasn't. It wasn't, yeah. But certainly. during that time, they want to be in that and they don't know any different. So it's about us kind of um, equipping them with the skills to be able to manage those emotions and come out of it themselves. I'd say that's what our main goal is, especially with things like DBT, so dialectical behaviour therapy, something we do uh, where I work and a lot of people I work with are trained in and I'm trained in. And that is kind of giving them those skills that they couldn't have when they were younger or they didn't cultivate when they were younger so that they can get through those situations right. by themselves. Um, it's so, relearning or, or, yeah, it, or it's exactly, new learning. But exactly. obviously when your mind has matured. Yeah. So actually it's a yeah. hell of a lot harder if you haven't learned it when... It's a lot harder. Wow. Um, but seeing them actually do it and achieve those things and really engage and... You know, even sometimes they think they say to us, oh, "These skills are so silly. You're teaching us silly, <laughs> silly skills of putting our head in cold water when we're feeling <laughs> sad." And then we once had—I once had a patient in the DBT group I was in. I was facilitating with a psychologist, and she'd gone on home leave that weekend, and she had children. And she came back and said, "You know, I was in the supermarket, and I got really overwhelmed, and I was going to have a panic attack, and I took myself to the three, the freezer section and put my head in the freezer." So it's something we call a tip skill. Um, and she said, you know, my body temperature went down and I calmed yeah. and, you know, even just something so small as hearing that. I remember in the group looking at her and thinking, oh, I'm so proud of you. Like, I'm so proud you did that. And she, I mean, she's years ago, she was discharged and she's living a great life. And seeing them just try these things that they think are so silly and juvenile mm-hmm. actually work. Yeah, there's nothing better. Really. It's, a, it's, it's, it's so, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet. And so rewarding for you because yeah. putting in that effort to try and get them to it's not just silly, this will, this will ultimately yeah. benefit you and allow you to cope Definitely. with any kind of situation, really. That's, mm. Yeah, wow. Um, so if you could just kind of go through a day, a day to day. Yeah, well, at work. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, so right now we have, I think, roughly about 15, 16 men on the ward I'm in. All of their mental illnesses span from, um, you know, chronic depression, um, a lot of anxiety on the sides. Uh, we've got a lot of schizoaffective, bipolar, schizophrenia, a lot of drug addictions we've come across. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is very important that people see drug addictions as mental illnesses as well. Yeah. Uh, which is luckily, like, fortunately, 
being more accepted as a mental illness yeah. and not just someone that we should push aside and you know it's their own fault it's their own problem because there's always mental illness underlying these mm -hmm. drug addictions um and that's been a new challenge i did do a placement on a drug addiction ward um and that was very wow. eye-opening that was yeah, that was really yeah. rough um, and it was half eating disorder and half drug addiction so that was a really tough placement for me um but now the men we've got yeah it's a whole group of them so I start at half seven, we have a handover obviously of all the patients um, and then we all get allocated our own little jobs. So we've got to do like physical obs throughout the day which obviously got heightened yeah. because of COVID. So we'll do like physical obs for them. We'll do meal times, obviously we facilitate the meal times because we have to be considered a cutlery and things yeah. like that of course. Um, so then we do the meal times and then we've got like an amazing team. So we've got therapists and like occupational therapists who mm -hmm. will do groups. Um, and they can be any kind of group. So we can do art therapy. They take them out to Box Hill. Luckily, my hospital is so close to Box nice. Hill, which is beautiful on a nice day. Um, I'd say the nursing side of it, we are just running around quite a lot. <laughs> um, we're doing a lot of signing out. Obviously, a lot of our patients depend on smoking and things like that. So we'll do a lot of, depending on their risk, is whether they're allowed to go out on the grounds and have a cigarette. Um, and we've got to sign, obviously, all the lighters out and things because we've got to be really, really mindful of risk items. Um, and then we're doing a lot of that. You can do one-to-ones if the patients are requesting a one-to-one, -one, depending on how they're feeling. Luckily, with the male patients we have at the moment, they're very kind of self-soothing. They will come to you if they need something. But unfortunately, as is the case with a lot of men, they like to stay sheltered. Yeah. Um, which has been a new challenge since we've got men, whereas the, the girls, you would know when they were visibly upset, they mm -hmm. would engage in a lot of self-harming behaviours, so it would be very obvious that they need time, whereas the men aren't so much, so we have Shield to go to them yeah, yeah. and say, you know, do you need a one-to-one, -one? do you need this, would you like to just go and do this activity with me? Um, so, that's yeah, that's been a new challenge in itself, trying to get them to actually open up and feel like we're actually helping instead of just mm. holding them there temporarily. Yeah. So that's been new. And then we'll do lunchtime. In the evenings, it's a lot of admin work, which is really frustrating for us because a lot of the times we want to go out and spend time with the patients. So a lot of the times we'll be rushing to get through <laughs> all of our notes because we're like, we want to be on the ward. Luckily, we've got a pool table, a table tennis table, Lovely. things like that. So when it gets to the evening, myself and my colleagues were like, right, let's go and engage them in these activities we can do because they would have had a whole day of, you know, occupational therapy things which might have been a bit intense sometimes or th therapy sessions that might have been a bit intense so it's kind of trying to de-stress them after all of that um or my personal favorite is cards i love getting a whole group of them playing cards i'm like right guys cool. get out of bed we're going to play cards we're gonna do this um and that's been really good i think it's it's hard to give a day-to-day -day because of the acuity of the ward of fluctuates course. massively yeah. We can have, like I said, where the patients come every 28 days, um, or they'll come, they'll stay usually on average 28 days because that's a section two, and they usually come on a section two. So you can have one week where you'll have patients who are really difficult to manage and you'll be restraining a lot, which mm -hmm. is my least favorite part of working in mental health. You'll be restraining them a lot because of their levels of aggression and violence yeah. or their levels of risk with suicidal ideation and things. You'll be spending a lot of time with them. And then the next week you'll have like service users who are really self-soothing and they can do all these things themselves and they don't require as much intervention. So you can kind of do more of the nice, fun things right. with them. 
So it really varies. I think that's one thing as well since becoming men is it's varied massively on a day-to-day -day basis. You can't walk in and think, oh, well, today will be a good day. You really just don't know what you're going to get yeah. and what, what kind of people you're going to get. Yeah, because it's, 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 like you say, it's not, there isn't like a set term like you would have in like, let's say a school where it's classes yeah. and you're all the same year group. It's different ages. Completely. Different, different illnesses, different backgrounds. Yeah. It's, it can yeah, massively it, vary. And that's the thing. And you'll get, you know, it's like anything, it's like anything with school, any kind of social experiment you see, little cliques form and, yeah. you know, people, they want to sneak cigarettes in, for instance, or something like that. So you'll just have that kind of challenge to deal with. Um, which is kind of as well, it's it's hard in a way because then a lot of the patients who really need your attention because of suicidal ideation will get overlooked because you're managing patients who are actually expressing more challenging behaviour than them yes. that need your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As everyone knows, healthcare is very underfunded, very understaffed. So trying to stretch yourself to all these people, that's, it's, it's really quite hard. Thin. Yeah, because you want to spend time with the people that need that kind of giving them that time and giving them those skills and giving them that advice and that guidance, but you can't because you're managing another it's another patient yeah, yeah. with difficult behaviour. So that's that's a big challenge at the moment that I think we've got. I think yeah, certainly, certainly being when I was on the ward, I think I obviously when I first went in there, I didn't really notice anything that was going on around me because you just you're just so in. Over exactly. like consumed, like yeah. Um, but as as I started to get better, I started to kind of realise more around me, and you do see that mm. there are the people that aren't necessarily at higher risk, or but yeah. because they are acting up, or like they are just quite difficult, mm -hmm. difficult behaviourally. It takes away from the attention that the yeah. others need. And you do see that you see people kind of just like hiding away in a corner and stuff. And it is quite, it's really. Yeah. It's really... And that's the people that we, I always say, like, you'll have another person, you'll have some a colleague saying, oh, isn't that person being really good? They're being so well behaved. And it's like, no, they're being really isolated. Reserved. And yeah. reserved. And they're, they're who we need to go and focus on. Yeah. And it's hard to try and maintain that kind of you know, your perspective with all of them because you've got a patient that you know, unfortunately, because of personality-wise, take the mental illness that is being quite challenging and you think, I really need to spend time with this person, mm -hmm. I really need to spend time with this other person and you're taking up a lot of my time. But on the other hand, they're acting in that way because of their own, you know, difficulties they're, yeah. man they're dealing with and it's, it's trying to get that balance, which I think is, again, we've only been male patients, I think, for like six seven months-ish now. Right. Um, so we're still getting into the yeah. swing of things. And luckily for me, I'd already worked on a couple of male wards on my placements. I'd done... So um, yeah, it wasn't a massive shock. <laughs> no, I mean, I was actually really happy. I was so happy when it got announced because I had done a placement a couple of months before, or maybe the year before, on a... I did a female acute, and then my next placement was a male rehab. And for me, I was like, oh, I love the acuteness of the, the acuity of the female acute ward and how quick the patients were. And it was kind of a case of we get them in, let's figure out what kind of medication works best for them, what kind of therapy they need. And then we send them back home because, mm -hmm. you know, the risk of being institutionalized. We had female patients on the ward I previously was that had been there for five, six years. Wow. 
and they'd been in hospital, not even just that hospital, you know, for maybe like 30 years. And you think you need, you cannot do this. It's the same as being put on a one-to-one. We had a lot of girls on one-to-one and sometimes they would be on one-to-one for a year. That's someone next to you at arm's length for an entire year in the bathroom anything you do that person is there by law we have to have eyes on them and some of them we have to be arm's length and you think after a year when you're so vulnerable coming not having someone there you're at your most vulnerable yeah we can't put you back on the one-to-one so i think it's almost stuck in limbo kind of thing it is and it's trying to you know understand that their risk is heightened but at the same time they're going to become dependent on this and you need to kind of get that balance and i think so going on the acute ward and having a lot more freedom to do things with patients and not be on a one-to-one 24-7 and then going to the male rehab, which I enjoyed so much, I was like, I would love the combination of two. I would love to go on a male acute ward. And I'd finished my placement for that year. It was towards the end of last year. And the hospital I was working for was really struggling quite a lot, um, especially with staffing and things like that. And then we had a meeting where our hospital director said, um, we all thought we were going to get closed down. So we're all sitting there. <laughs> What's going to <laughs> And then he said, we are becoming male acute. I was, I was just <laughs> yeah. I was so excited. You should have seen some people in the room was like, <laughs> I was like, no guys, this is going to be amazing. Like, I think the thing for me is with a lot of the girls we had, it was unfortunately girls from CAMS um, that had come transitioned from CAMS and the ward dynamics affected their care a lot and their ability to receive care and actually want care. And it made our job very difficult because they weren't receptive to it at all. They didn't want to engage. They didn't want to do anything. Um, And unfortunately, I guess, a lot of the time, unless you feel ready, you can't always be receptive to that care. But with the men that we have... It, I feel like for me, I'd done this, I'd done that for four years. So getting the men, you know, with a whole new set of di- different challenges, I was very much ready for that and I was very excited for that. And I think a lot of the colleagues that I, that worked on the female rehab and now with the men, um, it's been a nice change. Right, yeah, it's yeah. Been a, it's they been a kind of change. initially were a bit yeah. scared, but now it's that they've the unknown, come to... It's isn't it? But it's... Of course. It's, um, it's, I mean, the, the patients we have now as well are so appreciative. Um, the letters we get, the cards we get on a daily basis, that's... Makes and it. when they're discharged, when they're going home and we ask, we have like a discharge tree on the ward and we ask them to leave us a paragraph of their experience. And reading over them, it's like you could be having a bad day and you'll go to that and you'll look at it and you're like, okay, this is why, <laughs> this is why I'm doing this it. This is why I'm doing it. And it, yeah, it makes it all worth it really. It's amazing. The, all the rest of the behaviour makes it worth it definitely yeah 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 it can be very challenging but and 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 that's an interesting and what makes being in your occupation especially so kind of humble Mm -hmm. um is that you're not asking for extra kind of pay or bonus Mm. just seeing someone's kind words yeah actually makes the difference and then like you said when they've gone on maybe been discharged and you can see how well they're doing outside a hospital once yeah. you've seen it's it, it must be unbelievable yeah it's so good it is so good it's 
yeah, like I said, it just makes it all worth it. Mm -hmm. You can be having like a horrific day because of course there are days where you're getting attacked, you're getting bit, you're getting spat, spat on, you're getting your hair pulled and you just think, why, why am I doing this? And then you, you have to separate yourself and step back and say, okay, you have to understand these people aren't in their right mind right now. Mm -hmm. This isn't their personality. This is a mental illness that's affecting them. And, you know, the next week you'll come in and that person will actually have, you know, got into a routine of meds and therapy and be like, I am so sorry for what happened. Um, and you can't, you can't hold anything against them. No, yeah, yeah, it's not personal so at it's all. It's not personal, it's not personal at all. Um, but seeing them as well just take that um, accountability and you think that weighs a lot on them as well. We've had patients that have, you know really really felt awful about things they've done when they were unmedicated and had just come to us and and were withdrawing from drugs and things like yeah. that and you think and seeing that firsthand it gives you a whole different perspective on it because you think this person is suffering this person isn't choosing to go through this no yeah. one would choose to have this experience um yeah i think that's what uh, that's that, that's that's probably a bit of the misunderstanding in, that, that society perceives mm. 100% is that Definitely. Well, why don't they just stop it or like like it so, so touching on it earlier um, what you said earlier actually is that people have to realize that addiction is a mental illness mm -hmm. I, BBC News I think it was a couple of days ago reported <laughs> that okay. a new report had come out that drug addiction and alcohol addiction causes mental illness <laughs> thank you thank you so much <laughs> <laughs> and I think that just, I mean, I just, I saw it and laughed because I was like, that shows just still how far removed yeah. the education and awareness is around the topic. Yeah. And I do think we, I, even I, I feel like I experienced some of it even at work because I think a lot of the times we'll have someone come in with a drug addiction and because we're not a specialist drug addiction unit, it's obviously we will be helping them with, you know, go through the withdrawal process and then um, get medication sorted for whatever they might be experiencing if they're hallucinating, hearing voices, things like that. And a lot of the time, myself and colleagues will say, this, this person needs to be referred to an addiction unit because you can't just work on mental health and not the addiction or vice versa. It doesn't work like that. Like the, each of them are causing yeah. the other. And they both need to be understood as to why, because these things aren't, people don't just get addicted to things. There is usually mostly always a reason behind it. And I think therapy is just the absolute key thing to unraveling all of that. Um, and people, I just don't think people realize that at all. And people think, oh, you know, I have to have something wrong with me in order yeah, to have therapy. Yeah, and it's not, and it's no, and that's not the. I mean, I'm. If it was for me, if it was my decision, therapy would be everyone have it. Yeah. From, from childhood. Yeah, I think it'd be amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's people would be far more self-aware and far more empathetic. Definitely. Uh, definitely. For other people, and yeah, that's kind of you can't convince anyone to go to. Well, you can you can you can tell them that you should, but like, it's it's yeah. totally down to the individual to and the to, levels of engagement you yeah. have. I mean, I when I was trained in DBT, I got given one to ones, and 
some of them would be amazing sessions where mm -hmm. I would leave feeling like, yeah, I really... Really responsive. And yeah, really responsive. And some would just be completely closed off and not wanting to. And that's fine. That's not going to stop how I approach things. But for them, it was it's upsetting to know that they could benefit from this. Yeah. And they're not really willing to engage yet. Um, and that's always a tough one as well because it is that willingness to engage. Um, and that's what we say in therapy. If you're not willing to engage, you might not get as much out of it. It's just passiveness really, isn't yeah. it? It's just, it's like not listening in class. Like yeah, if, you're, if, if, you're not, if you're not actually processing it mm. or, or wanting to understand it, yeah. chances are you, it's, it's not gonna have it's the effects that it should. Yeah, that's always been a really tough... And I feel like even I experienced that when I was in therapy. I think, for me, my therapist... I think I started therapy when I was about 10 or 11. Wow. And I think my therapist saying stuff to me, I was thinking, what is she talking about? Something's so silly. <laughs> like, I think I remember one day I had... Because I used to have therapy in the middle of the week, so I would leave school to go to camps and come back. And she would make comments sometimes, and I'd say, oh, you know... My hair's a mess today. And she's like, well, well, how does that make you feel? Is this making you feel this? And I just sit there and I think, what is she talking about? <laughs> Stop it. And then after like nine years of that, I thought, well, that was a load of rubbish. And now, obviously, I'm a lot older. I can look back and think, actually, I don't know where I would be now if I hadn't had that. Um, and I didn't have that person to talk to once a week. And at the time, I was a stubborn teenager thinking, this is just a load of rubbish. And now I look back and I'm like, oh, okay, who knows what situation I could be in now if I didn't go to that. Yeah. Um, and I think it is difficult, especially CAMS, for instance, these CAMS therapists have 20 children they're seeing. Um, and then luckily for me, I, I discharged at 18 and then um, actually got put back into therapy through my secondary school, through my sixth form. And that, that school therapist I thought was amazing. And I thought... I'd always been told that these were really, you know, they didn't really know what they were talking about. And I, she was, she was great. She was really great. And I only did, I only went there for about six months, but she was really helpful as well. And I think, yeah, if everyone went through that process of therapy. The world would be a different place. The world would be a different place. And that's why I think as well, it's very important to have friends who go through those processes with you as well. And not to rely on your friends, but I know my friends, I can go to them with a problem and they'll say, okay, take a step back. Let's think about this in this way and this way. I mean, I, I am lucky, obviously, a lot of my friends, my closest friends do work in mental health. Mm -hmm. um, so we do know how to kind of communicate with each other in that way. And most of us aren't at therapy anymore. So having that is very important, I think, as well. Yeah. Having friends that will tell you the, the hard stuff and in that kind of respectable, lovely way mm -hmm. of helping you process things, I think that's really important. It's feeding off each other for mm. self-reflection, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's not like you're draining yourself trying to help your friend. You're just coming to that conclusion together or helping them see it in a different way. Like, I know my best friend, Alice, we work together. And we'll always approach each other with problems and say... And we almost DBT each other, like we're at work. <laughs> um, and we say, OK, check the facts. So that's a part of DBT where you take a step back and you actually just label it all factually, your, your irrational thinking or rational thinking, whatever. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, it's quite amusing that we we use those processes that we teach our patients on ourselves. <laughs> you just be looking at each other like, I know what you're you, doing. Yeah, <laughs> or self-soothing, for instance. Like, luckily, we have um, obviously a lot of self-soothing things, and we'll use those, and we'll use the things that we give our patients in therapy. 
and it's like this isn't limited to people that are in, in patients or even people that have mental health you know illnesses it this is stuff that everyone should be doing anyway to take care of our mental health yeah um prevention is far more effective cost cost effective and exactly for the well-being in the in long term mm -hmm. um Definitely. and that's what's still misunderstood as well is that yeah at the moment we're spending so much money um understaffed and time to try and treat these illnesses because mm. they've onset from an earlier age yeah. but haven't been picked up or haven't been, picked up at all. Haven't, haven't been provided with the right resources yeah. to to prevent it from happening in the first place it's tragic it is tragic when you think that when i read some of these people's histories and i think this you know this person when he was a boy he had adhd so he got labeled as naughty or this or that and then because it's not picked up and you know if you get diagnosed with something even a bit more outside of the bracket of mental illness but you know, under a bit of um, ADHD autism, if you're if that's not picked up and you're not approached in a certain way and you're not taught how to manage this, you know, amazing unique qualities that you now have in ways to kind of harness and use to your best ability, it becomes completely erratic and yeah. you don't know how to manage it. So then it ends up coming out in ways of drug addiction, which then mental illness and stuff. And it is really awful to see that actually, if this person was in therapy as a child these things wouldn't have happened. And you see it a lot with crime as well. We get, we get a lot mm -hmm. of forensic patients who have done, you know, have criminal convictions and you think to anyone else they'd get labeled as, as whatever. But to us, then you see actually a lot of this could have been prevented if the mental health services were in place for them when they were younger, they wouldn't have got to this point at all. And that's really hard to see. And it's also really hard on the flip side of discharging our patients. Ones that we've had that are homeless, discharging them knowing where are they going to end up? Yeah. Where are they going to go to? We're discharging them to a community team. It's a bit of a catch twenty two, really, it's isn't it? Because really you, they, they they actually end up reoffending to stay to stay yeah. in shelter to, That's, to we, actually we have, have someone to stay. We have had patients that have you know they have mental illnesses because they live on the streets and they do turn to drugs and then they say you know at least while I'm here I have this and this. And yeah. It's like as much as we try and cultivate and make like a lovely environment for them, it's not nice for anyone to be. No mm. one wants to be there. Um, but a lot of these people actually, they see it as at least temporary accommodation or something yeah. like that. And it's, it, that shouldn't, it shouldn't, your option shouldn't be, let me go to a, a psychiatric unit to be able to have that. To be able to have that, yeah, that yeah, yeah. Shouldn't Basic be human there. rights. The community thing should be in place. And they are, but they're just not funded enough, not staffed yeah. enough. Yeah, uh, you might have seen it or might not have, but I did a post about my kind of experience mm, with the community yeah. team because they are meant to be checking up on you and but you just so the trouble is I'm not sure what would have happened if I didn't have um the opportunity which I'm very grateful for to have a private private mm, private health yeah. care in terms of therapy and things like that because mm. the community team once I was discharged from hospital the community team were obviously meant to be checking up on me yeah. seeing what I was doing I think literally the day after I got back, I had a lady come and visit me and she basically just deemed like straight away, even though that was like my first full day out oh. of hospital. And she was like, I'm not going to come and see you because you seem fine. <laughs> um, and I think it's just because like... It's just so in, frustrating. Yeah. It's so frustrating. And, and I, I, I don't usually mention this, but there is such, there is such a thing as high-functioning depression. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't like to see it as a medical term, but I can't... I can't stress enough how 
easy it, is, easy it was for me to make it look like I was a normal functioning person yeah. going about my day-to-day -day and inside my own head was just the yeah. total opposite of what I was doing. I think you kind of cultivate these um, coping mechanisms yeah. that enable you to not be so obvious with mm -hmm. it because you don't want it for any reason. You don't you don't want to admit it. You don't want your people, your friends and family to see it. You simply just want to keep it to yourself. And I think that is a massive, again, misconception in society that, well, you, you're holding down a job and you're going about your day and you're seeing your friends and you're smiling, so you must be fine. <laughs> and it's like, no, no. A chemical imbalance is a chemical imbalance and the way you feel... You know, you can't compare, and this is another thing we talk about at work, you cannot compare some one person's experience to another, to another person's yeah, experience. To another, yeah, it's totally unique. It's totally unique. And this person, like you said, there's so much going on in your head. And it is unfortunate that people, especially like people with high-functioning depression, they, they get so overlooked to a point where like you're suppressing, you're suppressing, you're suppressing, and then it... it just blows over, yeah, yeah, anymore. yeah, yeah. And that's the problem. And people burn out. And Burnout was, yeah, yeah. That was the biggest thing for me, definitely. Yeah. After my, so I'm not sure whether I've spoken about this before, but at university, so I attempted to take my own life at university. And rather than taking the time out, mm. after about two weeks being at home, I came back and finished my degree. Wow. Um, using the work as distraction. Yeah. Um, and smoking a lot of weed because yeah. that obviously kind of allowed me to disconnect from kind of yeah, reality. Um, yeah. So after that, after I'd come back from university and stopped living there and mm. came back home and all of that stopped, the distraction wasn't there. Exactly. The escape wasn't there. I was then back into Forced work and you just it. burn out. You no, just burn exactly. out. It's that, and that's another thing. I think that's a massive culture we have. You know, this whole grind culture. The grind, <laughs> the grind culture. And I think that's like... <laughs> I think amazing if you can do that 100% amazing and you know what there are things that you can do to improve your mental health obviously I see you post about it quite a lot there's so many things going out in nature you know being active some people exercise is like key for them um, but I think it is getting that balance between knowing what's helpful and what is too much and when you need to rest and when you need to relax and not do too much because mm -hmm. there's a big I think difference between managing and distracting and you can manage your symptoms and the way you feel with certain you know coping mechanisms and I think the awareness of am I doing things that make me feel safe and happy and actually like self-soothe me right now or am I doing things to distract and to just continue without having to process what I'm what I'm going through mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of people don't get that balance right yeah and that's and, you know, it's a very fine line as well. Which and is the what... society we live in doesn't necessarily enable us to get that balance. No, because no. I know for me, if I'm working three days in a row, that's, you know, I'm up by six, I'm, I'm home by nine. Wow. And that's, say, a three days in a row process of working with, you know, these really unwell people that does take a toll on you. And it's kind of like, I need to know what I need to do on my days off to be able to kind of reach that equilibrium, go like recharge, go back to kind of my normal baseline to be yeah, able to yeah. then go back to work and yeah. do that all again. Um, and that's really hard for our, every, anyone to try and get into, I think. Definitely. 
and that it comes back to that self-awareness of knowing mm. what 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 is good for you and what harms you yeah and always having things in moderation because Definitely. it's like i said it's a very fine line between overindulging and then it's yeah it's true <laughs> spirals we did encounter a couple of technical difficulties when we were recording this episode um which meant that the it stopped recording just before ellie could talk about her mindful technique uh so she's been an absolute star and sent it to me via voice note so here is ellie with her mindful technique i definitely think journaling is an important practice that everyone should be doing more if they're not i think holding that space with yourself in the mornings and the evenings to practice gratitude set goals to-do lists and then in the evenings just processing the day and fully absorbing the day in a way that not a lot of people do you know taking that time to understand your emotions and how they fluctuated through the day it allows for a level of self-awareness that you wouldn't normally have I think you know it goes it, it shows in the studies that the journaling can improve memory comprehension cognitive processing and I think it's just such an important practice and act that we should all be doing um and definitely before we go to sleep kind of get all of that those worries those concerns and those amazing things that have happened during the day get it all out um and by writing something it almost solidifies it in your brain and I think that's I think that's really special and I think that's something we should all do more Ellie I want to thank you for not only sharing your experience and insight into what it's like to being a mental health nurse but for the work that you and everyone in the NHS are doing to help support patients suffering with mental health problems or mental illness uh, it truly is an, an amazing amazing thing thing that you're all doing um, and I don't think you get enough praise for it so so thank you and thank you to everyone who has listened and watched this week. And we'll see you again next week on Sully's Open Conversation. Thank you and goodbye.